studying the uh, book of Galatians, and I uh, just want to mention to you as well, out at the front desk, there are postcards that have verses on the back. We'll take different portions of Galatians uh, sections for memory. If you want to memorize some scripture, uh, we've picked out a few different passages from Galatians that'll sort of coincide with different sections where we are, and so this first one is Galatians 2, 15 and 16. I want to encourage you, if you're looking for some incentives, some encouragement for your family to do Bible memorization is to pick up one of these cards and uh, maybe take it and use it at the dinner table or someplace where you can um, memorize some of these portions of the book of Galatians. You can turn to Galatians, but I want to, I want to think about some from the Old Testament first before we actually open Galatians, because I think this is relevant. I am often intrigued by the life of Solomon. He was king over Israel. He followed his father David to the throne, and Solomon's got a pretty remarkable story. If you, you look at the book of 1 Kings, the first 10 chapters is really the, the prospering of the nation of Israel under King Solomon, because Solomon loved the Lord he obeyed God. There is this great blessing. And in fact, God gives to Solomon the opportunity to ask for anything. Essentially gives Solomon that, that opportunity to, to just ask for something. And, and Solomon humbly says, Lord, I need an understanding mind in order to govern your people well. That is a, a humble acknowledgement that the task that Solomon was given to govern the nation was not something he could do on his own. He needed wisdom from God, and so he asked for wisdom, and God gladly gives it to him. God um, is, is delighted at what Solomon requests, that he didn't ask for more riches, he didn't ask for military victories. Instead, he shows this dependence on God. Grant me wisdom. God gives it, and Solomon, as we see, becomes then, by God's doing, the wisest man. His wisdom exceeds that of those who preceded him and those who followed him. And in fact, other rulers come to Israel to listen to the wisdom of Solomon. He becomes renowned for this godly wisdom that he speaks. He builds a temple to God. He builds a palace. He leads the nation in worship and in loving God. And so those First 10 chapters of 1 Kings are sort of this success story. All that goes well as the king obeys the Lord and the nation prospers. And then it all changes. In 1 Kings chapter 11, it says Solomon fell in love with foreign women and married them. He began marrying women who worshipped other gods. And 1 Kings 11 says his heart was turned away from God. Solomon, who has led the nation so well, now is turned aside, and he is disobeying God to the point that 1 Kings eleven six, speaking of the man whose wisdom was renowned, now it says he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon wrecked the latter years of his life, and his 40-year reign over Israel spends the final few years as God is raising up adversaries to challenge Solomon in punishment for what Solomon has done. If the wisest man who ever lived could do that, the man who loved and served God could so brazenly betray God, so can you and I. We, we need to look at that humbly and understand that here is one who, who walked and talked and led all of the right things, and yet he betrays God. Now, certainly, I think we go to the end of Ecclesiastes, and it appears like before Solomon finished life, he, he understood what he had done. It seems to call the people to fear God and obey his commandments. But it is a 
long path for Solomon of destruction at the end of life. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul talks about the Israelites, and, and same thing. God showed them miraculous things. He delivers them out of Egypt. They, they see God's hand, and yet repeatedly they rebel against God. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It is Paul using the Israelites as an example and saying, See, see how easy it was to witness the hand of God, to worship God, and yet while Moses is up on the mountain with God, the people are creating idols, and they are betraying God. So Paul says anyone who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. We, we need to be careful. In the words of, of one commentator, apostasy can overtake any of us. It's hubris to think that it can't happen to us. We are frail human beings, and we are susceptible to enticement, to, to lust, to things that make life appear like it might be easier or, or better or more lucrative if we go in a certain direction. And, and there are times when that may lead us away from the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and in addition to our frailty is the fact that the New Testament teaches from Jesus in the Gospels to the letters to the churches in Revelation, it is constantly warning of false teaching, constantly stressing, look out, be aware, be alert. There are those who will come, and they will be false teachers. And they will not come with bright red shirts that say liar or enemy of the Gospel on them. They will often come and look very persuasive and attractive. And they will, they will speak about things like God and faith and hope and Jesus and peace and life and love and blessing and, and all of those good things. And they'll talk about that stuff. And yet somehow in their writing or in their speaking, the message will be diminished in some way. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be changed by these false teachers in some way. They will distort it and they will not speak truth. That's why when Paul begins the book of Galatians, we saw last week, we looked at those first five verses, and that's why he is right from the beginning as he's writing to churches that are under siege from false teachers where there are believers who are now struggling in their faith because of what they're hearing in this false teaching. That's why he spends the introduction hammering home elements of the gospel, stressing to them the, the main points of the gospel, that it is planned by God, that it is accomplished by Jesus Christ, that it is a gospel that is verified or validated, if you will, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He speaks of the resurrection in those opening verses. He speaks of it as a gospel of grace. It is holy of God's grace. It is a salvation that you and I cannot earn, that it must come by God's work and his grace. And it is a gospel that once received gives peace with God. And so he says in that opening, grace and peace to you from God our Father. It is because Jesus Christ, as Paul says in those opening verses, delivered himself up for our sins, delivered himself up to rescue us, that we are able to have peace with the justice of our Creator and be right with him. That is the gospel that we are called to believe and proclaim. And so as believers, individual believers, and as a local church, we must hold to this gospel. And in Galatians 1, 6-10, what we're looking at this morning, is really a warning, and it's based on this double-edged sword. This double-edged sword that on one side is our own propensity and frailty as humans to be enticed towards something that looks easier or better or more comfortable, and on the other side of that sword is the reality that there is a world that is seeking to entice us away, that is seeking to call us 
away from faithfulness and obedience to it. This is what we're reading this morning, not just a Galatian problem. This is a warning to all of us about being diligent, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe that gospel, and then to guard it as a body, to make sure that we stand on what is true and, in fact, even be willing to expose and rebuke false teaching. The false teaching that, that crept into the, the, the churches in Galatia um, didn't come in in an obvious way. It was from religious voices of influence who didn't come dressed as the villains. They came claiming to be fellow believers in the one true God. They came saying, oh, so you are, you are pursuing the Jewish Messiah. Well, here, we are here to perfect that for you. We, we understand because we come from a Jewish background. We are Jews, and so we can teach you the actual way. Paul's only sort of gotten you started on the path. We can actually walk you in the correct way, and so you should be listening to us. In a world that was filled with idols, they were able to come and say, yeah, we're with you. There is one creator God. Let us help you understand him, because what Paul has given you isn't quite the full story. In our setting today, these kinds of persuasive influencers have no problem calling themselves Christian. And yet, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy 3, 5, they have the the appearance of godliness and actually deny its power. When you diminish the gospel, when you distort the gospel in some way, you deny the ultimate power, which is God's through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we're going to focus on verses 6 through 10. Let me read. 1 down through 10, so we set the context. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, this is who the letter's from, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. That's who the letter's from. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For now, am I, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There are, in this passage, I think two things that we are called to do, both individually as believers, but also as a church in terms of standing firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, guarding the gospel, guarding what's been entrusted to us. It's a responsibility that starts with the elders of the local church. That's why in the qualifications for elders in Titus chapter 1, it says that they must know, they must handle well the trustworthy word of God so that they can instruct in sound doctrine and can refute or contradict those who stand against that, who can rebuke those who would contradict sound doctrine. And so it starts with the leadership in the church, but these are attitudes that must prevail throughout 
the body of Christ. This is how we need to, to look in seriousness at the gospel. The, the prerequisite to these things is knowledge of the truth of the gospel. It is all the things that we've already highlighted that were in verses 1 through 5, all of those fundamental elements of the gospel, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, turning from sin, putting faith in Christ, and relying on His grace. Can you briefly describe the gospel? Can you explain what it is that saves sinners? You, you need to know those, those basic truths and stand on them. That's what we've looked at. That's what we talk about often is knowing those truths. With that in mind, when we know the truth, we are better equipped to see the counterfeits. When we understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with a holy creator God and addresses man's problem, which is his sin and disobedience to God, and that the answer to that is the sending of God the Son to give his life on the cross and to die and rise again and, and trust in him, then it's easier to begin to see the counterfeits that take away pieces of that gospel, that diminish elements of it, that try to weaken it. Uh, most counterfeits have elements of truth. They talk about Jesus. Some are heavy on love and joy and forgiveness and very light on judgment. And so they, they come with a picture of a God who is really super kind and, and, and really has nothing against man. And, and, and everyone in the end gets saved except maybe the the serial killers and the people who hurt children. You know, we, we sort of come up with our own categories here of what the really bad stuff is. And if there is hell, it's, it's only for those who are really evil and reprehensible because God is just sort of this kind, loving, grandfatherly figure who just brings everybody in. A lot of other counterfeit gospels talk a lot about Jesus, but the message is heavy on blessing and prosperity and light on sin. God is all about making my dreams come true and showing me pathways to success. God understands that, that what attracts people are, are, are good-looking, beautiful people with great-looking lives and big, joyful smiles, and that when people see that, they're drawn to it. And so, so God is doing everything he can to make me happy and give me everything I need so that I be attractive to you and you want to follow what I have because my life just looks great, looks super on Instagram. And, and when you get up close, it doesn't look too bad either, right? And sin, well, that's just, the, that's just the lousy stuff other people do to, to keep me from getting my goals. And it's the, the bad attitude that I have when I fail to believe in myself and my ability to push through and find my, my dreams. And there's the, the counterfeit that says, well, Jesus and his suffering are important. But living a good life and, and fulfilling certain moral expectations, that's ultimately what God requires of me. Believing in the gospel gets me into a good place but my obedience is what keeps me there. In fact, by this counterfeit, it's my obedience ultimately that justifies me. It's my, my performance that scores God's approval. That's the one that was happening in Galatia. That's the, that's the counterfeit that was being brought to the Galatian believers. Yeah, good. Believe in Jesus as the Messiah. That, that's a good start. If you remember last week, we looked at Acts 13 and 14, which is the, just the history. It's the, how Paul went to these churches in Galatia and how he preached the gospel, four different cities. He goes there and he proclaims the gospel, and the churches are established. And the, the, the stunner is when you get to Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Galatians, we assume, is one of the earliest of the New Testament books to be written. And Paul is saying... It just wasn't long at all. I was with you, 
and I preached to you, and you professed faith, and we, we got churches established, and now, so quickly, you are deserting the one who called you. If you follow after Acts 13 and 14, chapter 15 gives us a model for, for what actually takes place in these churches once Paul leaves. If you look at the map, churches of Galatia are in the bottom part of that dark green section. We talked about this last week, how he preached first in that far western city, Antioch and Pisidia, then comes across to Iconium, Lystra, Derby. Preaches in each one of those, is pursued by Jewish persecutors in each one, ends up traveling back through each of those cities, helping them to establish churches. There are professing believers. He helps them to appoint elders and to get rooted in sound doctrine. And then Paul leaves, heads down to the Mediterranean, and he sails across to, on the right side of your map, you see another Antioch over in the yellow area. That's Antioch in Syria. He goes there and he does the same pattern. Preaching the gospel, going to the synagogue first, where he has this natural connection, preaches the gospel, and there comes opposition right away. A good number of Gentiles come to faith in Christ. But listen to Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This is when he's in Antioch and Syria. It says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. You see what's happening. Paul and Barnabas go to these cities and they preach salvation by grace through faith. They are preaching Jesus Christ as the centerpiece. His death and resurrection, believe in him and you will be saved. And no sooner do they preach that than you get Jewish teachers from Judea who show up and they don't come in and say, oh, no, 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 that's all wrong. That, that message is completely wrong. It's actually this message. What they do is they just sort of piggyback off that message and say, okay, it's all well and good that you want to believe in the Jewish Messiah, but in order to do that, you're going to have to convert to Judaism first. You can't think that salvation from our God, somehow is going to just happen to you because you believe in Jesus, you're going to have to go through these certain rituals. And for the, for the men, this was um, circumcision. It, essentially, what they're saying to them is, you've made a good start, but you're bypassing the, the, the actual way to God, which is through rituals. That's essentially the charge. You've got you've to essentially become a good child of Abraham by doing these certain things. And that, then, will get you in the path toward being right with God. That's the heart of the false teaching that happened in Antioch, but was also happening in all of those churches that were there in Galatia. Certain rituals required of God-fearing Jews are now being taught to the Gentiles as, this is the way to believe. This is the way to be declared right before God. Take circumcision. Take the feasts and the rituals of the Mosaic law and obey them and hope that if you do all of this, jump through all these hoops, you'll be in a good place before him. It's essentially, it's, it's taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, faith in Christ alone and his death and resurrection, and it's sort of making it the entrance exam that gets you into the school that starts to move you toward the final test of righteousness, which is ultimately under this is your obedience. It's whether or not you will keep the law and follow the things that you are told to do and pass this sort of mosaic law test and go through these feasts and rituals. If you do all that, then you may be okay. They were distorting the gospel. 
So two ways that we, we should respond to what, when false teaching comes and challenges the gospel of Jesus Christ in our midst. The first one is to recognize the danger. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There's three words in those two verses. All start in our English translation with D. Different, distort, and um, deserting. Different, distort, desert. A gospel that, that in any way is diminished lessens the work of Christ. Gospel that has a problem with a son being beaten and nailed to a cross and suffering and dying there. A gospel that weakens the grace of God that says, no, you've got to add something to it. A gospel that weakens God's judgment and says, ah, I don't know that God could pour out his wrath on his son. I don't know that we're all going to, that we should deserve that sort of wrath. A gospel that, that misses those is not simply a weakened gospel. There is one gospel, it is God's gospel. And so when Paul says that, that they're coming to you with a different gospel, his point at verse 7 is immediately to almost refute that. He says, you're turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is another one. There is no such thing as a different gospel. He's saying that's an oxymoron. There, there, there can't be another gospel because there is only one gospel. It is God's gospel. This is the, this is the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the distinctiveness of what we believe and proclaim, that there is but one way of salvation, and that's because that's what the, the New Testament boldly teaches, that there is only by trust in Jesus Christ that there is hope. There is no other gospel. There's no gospel light. There's no almost gospel. It either is the clear teaching of Jesus Christ about the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man and the death and resurrection of Christ and faith in him, or it is not. It is not the gospel. In this case, he says the false teachers are distorting the gospel. He says at the end of verse 7, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. The Greek word for distort is to reverse something. It is to just take it and put it in the other direction and say, no, that's not actually what it means. It means this instead. It's, it's as if to take the gospel and to stand it on its head so that it becomes unrecognizable at that point. There's pieces of it that look similar, but they're now all jumbled and they're different. Faith was replaced by works. The sacrifice of Christ is being replaced by the performance of man. Grace is now replaced by achievement. It's now what, what must I do to earn God's favor, as opposed to what has Christ done that I must trust in for my salvation. That's what they were doing with the gospel, distorting it. And the danger, Paul says, of embracing something that is not God's gospel but is a distortion, he is, he is shouting in verse 6 what the danger is. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Notice what he says they are deserting at that point. It's not that you're deserting a, a group of people or you're deserting a, a list of doctrine. Who does he say you're deserting? God. The, the word for desertion there is the idea of being a traitor. You are, you are being a spiritual traitor. You who professed allegiance to the God who accomplished, who planned and accomplished this gospel. If you now pursue this path, of works and achievement and trying to earn God's favor, you are now literally deserting God. You are switching teams. You are changing allegiance and saying, I'm not going to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. You are leaving the one who called you. We must 
know the gospel so that we see when there are those who try to distort it, who try to, to weaken it, who try to diminish it in some way, and that we see these counterfeits and we recognize the danger. Second thing is refute the danger. When Paul starts this, his, his first words there are, I am astonished. This is just, this is just utter shock. If you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for any length of time, you have more than likely had people that you've encountered in life who once professed faith in Jesus Christ and who have walked away from that, who have gone in a completely different direction and by their lives and their words have essentially renounced the gospel of Jesus Christ and have walked away and gone back to, to self and whatever other ways they, they are pursuing. 1 John 2.19 describes that, warns of that, says that there are people who, are, who, who will be in the midst of the body and who will carry out certain things, who will fellowship with the body, and yet then they go out from us. It says they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. By, by going out, they declare they were never genuinely saved in the first place. They, they came and they, they took some benefit in the local church, and then they left. God's word warns of those who profess faith and then abandon it. Jesus did this when he talked about the scattering of the seeds. and Some of those seeds would, would, would spring up into life, and then all of a sudden the heat would come, the, the pressures of the day, and that, that plant would die or it would be choked out by weeds, by the cares of the world. And Jesus is saying there's, there's people who profess faith and then they, and they walk away. Paul's astonishment should be a reminder to you and I that we should never be casual in our concern, in our diligence about those who have professed faith in Christ and who walk away or seem to be in the process of walking away or who seem to be walking into rebellion and sin and not listening. We should never be casual about that. In fact, we should respond to that. Timothy George writes, Paul appears to have been genuinely shocked at the news he received from Galatia, coupled with the fact, as it says here in verse 6, it happened so quickly. Paul is just dismayed that these people that he, he poured himself into, who professed faith in Christ, now are, now are beginning to go in this direction of, well, Christ is good, but but I've got to do this and I've got to do that in order to actually be right with God. You and I are not sovereign over the souls of other people. We, we don't have the ability to go in and turn the hearts of other people. God is sovereign. But his sovereignty should never make us casual in the least about sheep who stray, about those who begin to walk away from the truth, those who professed to embrace it and who now go off on a path. We should be like Paul, shocked, and heartbroken and agitated to the point of action. Paul's action is to write a letter. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just get the news and bemoan what's happening in Galatia. Paul sits down and he puts pen to paper, the first thing he could do. You and I are used to a little bit more immediacy. We pick up the phone or we text, we email, something happens quick, a letter doesn't seem all that quick. In Paul's day, this was the most immediate way he could respond, is to put down a letter and give it to the messenger and say, take this back to the church's right away, and to express the urgency of his concern and the call to repent and turn back to Christ. He didn't, he didn't chalk Galatia up as sort of a swing and a miss in God's providential plan in, in, of evangelism and go, oh, well, that one just didn't work out. That's uh, a bummer that they all went this way. Paul felt desperate for their souls, 
And so he, he urged them to come back to Christ. He pleaded with them to recognize the danger and to not listen to these false teachers to refute them. In fact, he goes so far as to include himself in this when he says down in verse 8, as we, uh, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He says, if somebody comes and preaches something that amends the gospel of Jesus Christ that you received, say, oh, here's, here's version two, you need the update version of the gospel. If somebody comes to you with that, let him be accursed. Even if I were to come back to you, Paul says, and, and say something different from what I've told you before, let me be accursed. If an angel from heaven says something, let him be accursed. That word for accursed is, is our word anathema. It's the Greek word that's the basis of that. It, it, it's not just a sort of a, a rebuke or a rebuttal or a complaint. Paul is speaking harshly when he says this. He's very much in the vein of Jesus Christ when Jesus spoke in Matthew 18, and he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's a strong language, but that's the kind of language Paul is using here. He says, if someone dares to come and say, well, I got, I got a gospel that's actually, it's a little more user-friendly, it's a little easier, doesn't get into all this repentance stuff, and your sin's not really an issue, or, or whatever it is about this gospel, I got a gospel you'll like better, and they are enticing people to desert God, they should face, as Paul says here, divine judgment, lest they don't repent. That Greek word anathema is used at several points when the Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, was translated into Greek. It was used to describe something that was dedicated or set aside for the judgment of God. And so when it talks about the city of Jericho in the book of Joshua, Joshua 6.17 says that because of Jericho's hostility toward God was devoted to the Lord for destruction. One commentator explains it well when he says that the curse Paul called down on the false teachers was a none-too-subtle inducement to the Galatians to separate themselves from the rival teachers. Have you ever sort of joked around with somebody when you were standing next to them and they said something or did something that wasn't really all that godly at the moment? In fact, it was kind of wrong, and you said, I'm not standing right next to you right now if something happens. We might joke about that. Paul is not here. Paul is saying these false teachers because of what they are doing, that they would dare to entice people to desert God, are worthy of eternal punishment. They are, they are leading spiritual traitors into the judgment of God. We, we live in a culture where the, 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 the theme when it comes to dealing with biblical Christianity is Matthew 7.1, don't judge or you'll be judged. And, and the culture reads that and says, don't you judge me. Don't, don't talk to me about sin or right and wrong or holiness or righteousness. I can do what I want, and if you're going to be a good Christian, you just love me. You don't judge me on those things. If, if Paul read the writings and listened to the teachings of Jesus, got those teachings as they were handed down in the Gospels, and believed that was the intent of what Jesus says, then, then Galatians is way out of line. Paul obviously did not get the message, because in the book of Galatians, Paul says, Oh, Foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It sounds a little judgy, I think, doesn't it, of, of Paul to say that to people he's writing to that he loves. You're being fools. Somebody has just they completely deceived you at this point. 
He goes on and he says later on in chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of kindness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We're called to not sit back. When we see somebody who professes to be a brother or sister in Christ in danger, possibly moving toward, toward deserting God and embracing something else that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're called to not just sit on our hands at that moment and say, well, God's sovereign, I'll, I'll let God deal with it. We're called to love them enough and to pursue them, to urge them back. In fact, as, as chapter 6 says, being careful as we do so, knowing how susceptible we are and how frail we are, susceptible we are to being dragged into that desertion. So we refute the lies that are enticing them. We proclaim truth, call to repentance. And then verse 10, he ends this here in this section and says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Think about it. When you see a brother or sister in Christ who is being reckless about their faith, who's being foolish in their life, who by the way they are talking or acting seems like they are moving further and further away from the work of Jesus Christ. What is it for you that, that keeps you from going after them? What is it in your mind that keeps you from pursuing them and refuting that? I don't know about you, I know for me it's, it's fear, man. It's that, that sense of I, I don't know that I want to do, I, I don't, this is going to be awkward, this is going to be hard. This is, this is urging somebody to, to come back from something and, and, and say that they were wrong. And that's what Paul's saying here in verse 10. You, you think I'm seeking your approval? <laughs> you think this letter's about me trying to win you over? Thomas Schreiner, who's a great commentary on this book, writes, What slavery we live under when we long for the good opinion of others. It is far better to be a slave of Christ than to be enslaved to human opinions of us. Fear of human beings can be deadly. And that is a great statement. And, and, and if Paul feared man, you don't write Galatians. You don't write a letter that comes at the churches that you have loved and served and say, don't be foolish. How are you doing this? This is wrong. Come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows what he's talking about when he talks about fear of God and fear of man. Because Paul will tell us in just a few verses, he'll go back to his days before Jesus Christ when he was persecuting Christians as a Jewish leader. And one of the things that he describes in verse 14 is, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. Paul says, you know why I, what my motivation was before Christ? Looking good in front of people. I was, I was like a religious rock star. I, when I persecuted Christians, people cheered for me, and I longed for that adulation, and so I kept doing that because it kept scoring points with people. And now he's writing and saying, no, that's not the way to go. Fear God, not man. After Paul was, was saved by Christ, he spends three years off in the wilderness in quiet discipleship and training, and when he reemerges, he enters into a ministry in which he will be repeatedly insulted, mocked, arrested, beaten, stoned to near death, dragged off to Rome, imprisonment in chains. He goes through one suffering after another. So Paul is able to speak to us very well about, who am I trying to please in this moment? I, I've done the man-pleasing route. I'm 
now striving to please God and be a servant of Christ. If you and I are going to stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of a culture like ours, you should count on being mocked. You should count on getting opposition and expecting people to challenge you and people to say that you're too narrow and you're prudish and you're unkind and your speech should be silenced and you're judgmental. And if your aim in that moment is to please man, then the, the minimal temptation will be to just shut up and not say any more so that I don't get mocked. And the worst temptation would be to be drawn into deserting God and distorting the gospel somehow joining with them and weakening the message and maybe lightening the whole sin thing and the suffering of Christ thing. That's, that's the worst of it, and that's what Paul's addressing here. We preach the gospel of a Savior who was despised and rejected by men. Isaiah 53 says, A man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief, who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. His gospel is nothing less than his sacrifice of himself to place himself in our place to absorb the just wrath of God that we deserve so that we might be forgiven and have life. We must assume there's cost that comes with believing that gospel, that not everyone will embrace that. and We may face cost for standing on that gospel. We must believe that there are charlatans who will come along and say, oh, yeah, here's, here's what Christianity is, and, and, and it's a different form. It doesn't look like what we're seeing in the New Testament, what we've seen so clearly. And we must be prepared to stand firm on this gospel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you that your gospel ultimately rests the work of Christ and the application of your grace in the hearts and minds of sinners who desperately need salvation. Thank you, Father, that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was sufficient to pay the price for sins. There's no, there's no suffering or works, or rituals, or activities that I could do that would would ever be needed to supplement what Jesus did on the cross as demonstrated by not only his death, but his resurrection. We are grateful that we have the opportunity through Christ, we who are believing in Christ, to show you gratitude, to live in obedience because you have empowered us to do so through your spirit. You have now given us strength to live differently and to live as Vessels that would model Christ's likeness and that people would see Christ's life through ours. But thank you that amidst all of our failings, you have been rich in grace. And it is because of what Jesus has done that we have hope and life. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not fully trusting in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, pray that today would be the day when you would turn their heart to believe that the perfect Son of God took our sin on himself, suffering in our place, to give eternal life to all who will turn to him, who will repent and believe in him. Father, cause us this week, by your Spirit within us, to be bold. As we were singing just a few minutes ago, you are our life, you are our story, you are our everything. Help us to live that belief 
when we're with the, the difficult coworker. We're around the metro and it's not been an easy day. We're upset at something that's gone on in our family. Lord, in those moments, cause us to be people who live out this truth that Jesus Christ is Savior. We believe in him. We hold to his truth. When we encounter that person who is, who is challenging and raising questions and maybe even seeming to undercut the gospel in some way, Help us to stand firm. Help this church, help Grace Bible Church for as long as you give us life and breath to be marked by a sincere, abiding commitment to the truth of your word and the proclamation of your gospel. May we hold it out as the only hope to be made right with the God of this universe. Thank you that it is our hope. Thank you that in Christ we have forgiveness and eternal life. It's in his name we pray. Amen.